Welcome to the Zealous Advocate Podcast. Join attorneys James Moore, Kevin Littlejohn, and Misty Blagg as they explore law, technology, and persuasive arguments. Sit back, relax, and listen to your zealous advocates. Welcome back to the Zealous Advocate Podcast. We're so glad to have you. I am Misty Black, healthcare attorney here at Shipman and Wright, and I have my co-hosts and colleagues here, uh, fellow attorneys at Shipman and Wright, joining me, James Moore and Kevin Littlejohn. Back again, back again. Glad to be here, Misty. Yes, we had so much fun on our inaugural episode with our guest, Sherry Belts, and she just gave us some really wonderful litigation tips, and I just wanted to, to tease out some of our favorite takeaways. Um, Kevin, how about you? What was your favorite takeaway from Sherry? Well, one, I just thought just from a presentation perspective, she was a really phenomenal um, advocate advocate uh, with respect to what you should be considering um, as you're proceeding through uh, a trial. One of the things that I thought was the most persuasive to me uh, was her belief of how early we should be developing themes in cases. James and I discussed it last time with her is that you oftentimes find yourself at the last minute trying to figure out what this case is all about. And I think that her approach of quickly um, identifying the best way to resonate with a jury or juror um, about what you want them to take away from your case um was more impactful and insightful to me. Right. So you should have your theme during your deposition. You shouldn't be waiting for your theme during your trial because then your your theme can kind of frame your deposition questions. Uh, James, how about you? What was your favorite? Well, since Kevin and I did discuss it, he just took my response. <laughs> okay. I appreciate that, Kevin. Here we go. Um, but, the, the, you know, the next thing that I, I grasped from everything she had to say was trials are won in your sweatpants. Um, meaning, Agreed. meaning it's not at the time that the trial actually takes place when, you know, the trial is actually going to be won. It's the preparation, mm -hmm. uh, before the trial even begins. And I thought that was impactful. I think we all agree with that. Uh, but that's what I took yeah. most from it. It's the, the, the not glamorous part that most people don't think mm -hmm. about. We see that episode of suits where everybody is, is all dressed up and we're apparently drinking all the time. Um, <laughs> but they don't show you when you are, you are piling through facts, you are spending those, um, hours upon hours reviewing documents in order to, to find the facts that's going to win your case. Right. Um, and we are so lucky to have our intern here at, at Shipman and Wright for the summer join us. Yes. Katie Jean is here, and, and we threw her right in trial by fire, right? We said, come on down. you got to join us on our podcast. And, Katie, just take a few minutes to tell us what you love about advocacy. What brought you to law school? Yeah, so what brought me to law school was I was a former college athlete. Um, being a part of that environment for so many years, I kind of understood the own trial and tribulations that student athletes go through, having their own voices heard, whether it be with compliance issues, health issues, medical issues. Um, so that's what really sparked my interest in law. That is fabulous, and, and you bring about a very important point. My daughter was a, a Division Two athlete, and we had some blips in the road there with the coach, and there was really nobody to go to that would listen, and it, it was very frustrating. So I can see where compliance would motivate somebody there. 
Well, one of the things we like to highlight here is that (laughs) while James, Kevin, and I are good friends, we are very different in our advocacy styles. That doesn't mean that I think one is a better advocate than another. It's just we approach it from different angles, and we kind of want to highlight that, that you can be successful leaning into your natural self, which is another thing Sherry brought about. So, James, what would you say is your natural advocacy style? It's a great question there, Mr. I want to really listen to this too. So this, <laughs> don't interrupt him. I want to really hear what James has to say about this point because well, I'm, I'm very interested, James. Well, I appreciate that. And I'll direct my comments to you. Okay. First, I was taught a long time ago, Kevin, Oh. that as a litigator, you're either preaching or teaching. I agree. Now for me, I would say I'm more of a teacher. I'm very black and white. I like to lay out the issues. I like to lay out the law. And then I like to analyze that with the facts of the case. It's harder for me to be, I think, the preacher where, you know, you're more authoritative too in your position. I'm going to ask you what's your advocacy style, but I already know this. First, it's 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 any type of style you want. <laughs> the but chameleon. If you, but if you had to choose, you're certainly a preacher and a storyteller. Mm. So I, I, agree. I would agree it. with that. Yeah. I would I would I would definitely agree. I I consider my most comfortable position to be one in which I feel as if I'm preaching um to the judge or the jury at any given point in time. And the storytelling aspect of it, I think, is kind of what sort of led into the preaching aspect of it. Because, you know, I grew up in the church. My parents took us to church every Sunday. And so the first act, as you talked about last week, James, of persuasion that I was really familiar with was the style that preachers were well, often doing. That's a good point. Great point. And so I was point. always seeing that. And I think that kind of sort of, you know, developed my advocacy style and you know, you then oftentimes just it just grows into its own thing. And the storytelling aspect of it was one that I just always was fascinated in being able to put a picture in someone's mind as I'm telling them something. You know, Kevin, you have a really nice cadence to your voice, too. And here I we think, go, Misty. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just really want to talk about that. Is that, you know, you give pauses at the right moment. And maybe that is because you grew up in the church. And that mm-hmm. is one of the techniques that I know a lot of preachers use. Right. Um, so I, I think that's one thing that I really admire about your advocacy style. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, certainly. I, I think that's a lot of times and James will know it, certainly it's about what you say, but sometimes it's about what you don't say or how you say it or when you say it, James. And that's something that I think it's a stylistic thing. You know, people have a lot of different styles. I've, been in hearings where I thought I was stylistically going to overmatch a litigator or someone in the hearing, and they just methodically and oh, vanilla yeah. just dry. <laughs> yeah, Mr. Lojack was wrong for A, B, C, D, and this is X, Y, Z, Y, and and I couldn't I couldn't take enough pauses, Missy. I was just well, you know, style matters, but substance matters. <laughs> Always a lot substance, too. substance, substance, <laughs> and that's where James James will really go through mm-hmm. the case methodically. And I think that's the one thing when you're a young attorney or even in law school that you don't understand just how much the facts matter. And you have to be a master of the facts of your case. And that's something James is really great at. Well, and talking about the black and white, just, you know, background, I was a finance major uh, back in undergrad. And it was difficult for me to think in the abstract where everything was black and white, there was a there was an answer for everything that I did. 
So even, you know, going into law school and practicing law, that was one of the difficult things for me was thinking in the abstract that there are two different sides to every issue. Um, I've gotten better at it, but it's still certainly something that I, I try to work on. What's one thing, you know, as a you've practiced for a lot of years in litigation and how what's one way your style has changed through the years? And, and that's probably been a purposeful thing for you. Style. I'm not always right where <laughs> where, you know, when I would interpret things that had to be the answer. Um, so I had to learn again that there's two different sides that I need to start thinking that other, you know, on that other side to make sure that when I'm presenting this to a judge, to a jury, um, that, that I'm already prepared for whatever their position, whatever their argument is. When you're, you know, again, when you're black and white and you think there's only one side to a story, you forget about their argument. That is when you get blindsided. That's yes, when you sir. get blindsided. So that that was yeah. hard for me to uh, to learn. Well, I think that brings about. I, I like to watch Ted Lasso, and I, oh. I was kind of late to the late mm. to the game. But one of the particular lessons that I think he had is um, don't be judgmental, be curious. Right. And so that's that is an aspect I've had to work on. Is you really need to be asking questions more than kind of projecting your belief. On early in the case, at least, mm-hmm. you know, your job early in the case is really to get all the facts on the record, you know, figure out all those nuances, talk to your colleagues. We're really lucky here at Shipman Wright. We have some great attorneys who are always willing to bounce ideas off of. Um, so if I had any tip, for, it would just be curious. Mm-hmm. Don't assume that you know everything. Mm. Well, That's my, me, KJ. Be curious. Be, I'm always curious. Advocate. Be always asking questions. <laughs> well, I have a, in case you haven't noticed, I have a really Southern accent. So I always like to say my advocacy style is country mouse. So what does that mean? I think people, when they hear me talk, there's still a lot of bias against Southern accents. So they jump to judgment that you're not very smart. And that's okay. I had to get comfortable with that and say, you know, it's not my job to prove to them that I'm smart. Right. I don't need to do that because often when you're so busy proving to somebody you're smart, you're losing what they have to say. So I sort of approach things the same thing with being curious and not projecting in the beginning. A lot of times being a healthcare attorney, I'm working with a lot of regulatory agencies. My job isn't to initially jump on a call with them and tell them what the law should be. It's to figure out their interpretation of the law, and then I can be um, persuasive. And, well, don't you think it could be this? Especially, usually when you're reaching out to a regulatory agency, you're in the gray with the rule anyway. So you're trying to figure Mm -hmm. out the agency's guidance on it. So I am country mouse. And it's really played well for me because it keeps me in my mental game, too, to stay curious. Is there, Katie, is there any particularly advocate, particular advocacy style that you've seen somewhere that you think, gosh, that's that's what I want to be like in court? Do not say 
Kevin Little John, Katie. I will get up and walk out. You probably already paid her, so I'll have to go. I'll have to go with my second choice then. Uh, but um, honestly, my dad, so he mm. does a lot of advocacy just for his own work. He does a lot of stuff with um, veterans, nonprofit work. And so when he's speaking to large groups, he's very straightforward with what he has to say, getting to point A to point B. But he does it in a way that can focus on how different viewpoints might see the discussion of what he's talking about. Um, so it's a very open dialogue type of discussion, but at the same time, he's going to get to the point and just pretty much cut to the chase, which I really like. You cool. know, th that's a very important point because we sometimes have to take on different um, sort of uh, ways to look at things. Sometimes we're having to be very objective in our writing. James, how did you learn how to, to figure out when you had needed to be more in the objective lane or when you needed to be more in the persuasive lane? I mean, that shift back and forth is really difficult at times. I think it depends on your audience. Um, if you're talking about a judge, you know, some judges are aggravated if you're very authoritative in your position versus, you know, kind of being more laid back and telling them a story and you know, how you think the law applies to your case versus the situation where you're like, this is the, this is the law, this is the facts and I'm right. So it's an, it's an audience based thing for me, to be honest. And I think on that same point, a lot of times for me, at least, it also depends on how confident I am in the position I've taken. And yeah. you'll see in some of the briefs that I've written where it could have gone either way, it has been a 40, 50 page persuasive <laughs> mashup of, of facts that were 20 pages long because I need you to really understand, understand where, where I'm coming from. And then on some issues where, it, where I thought it was very clear on yeah. the on summary judgment, it could be a 20 page brief because this is something that's very clear. So I think, you know, to that point, it's, it's you know, how how right you really or how clear you really think the issue is for a right. judge to decipher as well. But, you know, one thing, you, you never want to walk your facts out there too far. Mm -hmm. And I see I see that mistake a lot in people's writing. They are willing to, to say, you know, um, kind of stretch that fact a little bit past where it needs to be, because I think really judges sniff that out. You know, and that that gets fleshed out. And I think then you lose a lot of credibility. Let's talk about. You know, sometimes when we're bringing cases, we're bringing them in a bench trial versus a jury trial. And should we be adjusting how we deliver, say, our opening, opening arguments, closing arguments, if we know we're presenting it um, to the judge as opposed to a jury? What's your thoughts on that, James? I hate to be <clears throat> redundant, but it, again, it's the audience. Um, I've had bench trials where I'm in front of the judge and I present an opening like I would to a jury. And I've had judges stop me and say, James, this, this is not a jury trial, you know, get to the point. Um, but at the same time, there are some judges that like the good spectacle where, mm -hmm. you know, you are putting on a show. So, you know, depending upon First, when with respect to judges, depending upon who the judge is, yeah. But juries, you're telling a story. You yeah. got your theme, Kevin, and and, and, right. and you're you're telling them a story up there, closing and opening. You're well, taking advantage of it. The first time I went and and had to observe a civil trial, I just remember the as we know right now, not a, 
A lot. I would say the majority of cases do not go to trial. And I think because of that, you're seeing a lot of attorneys that do not have trial skills. <clears throat> and not necessarily their fault. It's just things are getting settled before trial. So I went to observe this trial, and you had two attorneys that were not very skilled. And it was before a, a judge. It was a bench trial. And I just remember her, all of a sudden, she starts questioning the witness. And I'm like, what's going on here? And so that was very enlightening to me of, of that can happen, is that in a bench trial, the judge actually can start asking questions, and you need to be prepared for that. Sure. If you if you didn't get the answer out that yeah. the judge wanted, Kevin, I've seen it. I mean, he'll, he'll start asking his own questions. Yeah. He or she will start asking their own questions to get to the point. Right. So, Kevin, um, what's one technique I know you talked about, you know, going to the church and seeing preachers and that sort of helped form your advocacy style. But th is there a particular technique that you've picked up from another advocate that, that you've tried to work into your style? Yes. I mean, I think all throughout my legal career, you know, I think you're doing yourself a disservice if you're not trying to pick up things from from lawyers that you're working with. Um, our managing partner, Gary Shipman, is uh probably I'd say top three all time uh with respect to delivering an oral argument. Yes. And I'm gonna clip that and send it to Gary. Right. And, <laughs> the fact, and when I say top three, the only reason I'm saying top three is because, you know, he's he's definitely number one um for the race purposes. But um one thing that he did and always does is and I appreciate it from him was he as he's arguing certain issues he will pose to the judge questions that he knows his opposing counsel cannot answer to which mr shipman believes are very material to how the judge should rule on a case okay and i think that really it's it's i'm i am not yet totally skilled enough to master that but when done yeah i believe it was one of the most effective things i've seen from an advocate is to, it almost reminds me of Inception almost, where he, where he interjects into the judge's mind thoughts yeah. that he wants the judge to wrestle with with opposing counsel. While they're listening to right. all of the and, direct and right. cross. I want you to be thinking about this one question. That's powerful. Yeah, or in the, you know summary judgment hearings, it's, it's one of those things where I'm just like, this is something that if you can really, if you can master, you will you will do yourself and your client just the greatest service ever. So that's one thing that I've really picked up on. I think from... Uh, argument perspective as well i think one of the things that i've learned as well when you're young you always want to you want to tell everybody when they're wrong you know you always <laughs> me and james are in discussion you know james it's not monday it's tuesday and we're talking mm -hmm. about whether or not cookies are sweet or vegetable and they're like it doesn't matter if it's monday or tuesday and so yes i remember james probably didn't remember one of the times i was getting ready for a hearing we were just i was talking about every issue that might come up and he would just say like that's not that's not important that's not important <laughs> and you you really really get to really understand that when you get in front of a judge and you you find yourself in and out of the judge's consciousness so to speak where they're yeah. they're paying attention for some things and then you're losing them for other things and so understanding that not everything that's wrong that's said by your opponent has to be addressed by you right. and i think a judge can appreciate your ability to tailor in i mean to uh tone to hone in yes. on what the actual issue is. And if you have that one 
issue or fact that you really don't feel comfortable addressing. It's not in your favor. You better know the judge is going to ask about that. So prepare for it. Be ready for it. If it's a bad fact, it's a bad fact. You just have to have something, you know, a way to distinguish a case or something to come back with. Don't ask me, Judge. Ask ask him. (laughs) Ask him, Judge. I'll I'll get back to that, Judge. (laughs) So, Katie, you have just went through legal writing, am I correct? Yes. And so would you attest that it's a very difficult concept to master? Yeah. So in my legal writing course, we did both more objective writing and then more persuasive I think definitely going into law school, objective was pretty easy. I was a psych major, so uh-huh. it's pretty much the same of like kind of research writing, you know, spitting right. out the facts. Um, but the persuasion was definitely difficult to get a grasp on. Yeah, to me, I, I agree because I was in science. I was a, a healthcare provider before I went into law. So objective was easy for me. But that fire breathing litigator, that's what was so hard for me. James, how did you get the confidence when you're writing to just lean into your most persuasive arguments was that just by having a mentor look at your work is it just a te- you know it's just something that you just have to go through time and and home I, I think it's definitely mentorship number one you know people older attorney attorneys with more experience will review what you've done they will kind of hype you up about arguments you've made that gives you more self-confidence when you're writing um, because I struggled with persuasiveness. I mean, we talked about it last it's time, hard. especially in my writing. Uh, and then I had to quickly realize, look, that's your job here. Yeah. Be persuasive. Why are you right? Yes. Y- you know, don't, don't veer away from the issues that you have in your case. Take them head on. But, but tell, the, tell the court, tell the judge why your position is correct, even if there isn't a case directly on point on this issue here's why i'm right on this you know on on this issue whatever it is yes um well how do you i I do want to ask one question there um how do you get started writing a brief like what's the first thing to do are you an outline person are you a free writing person i think we all approach that blank sheet of paper that blank computer screen a little bit differently i'm an outline person uh, by first focusing on the issue Finding the case law that supports my position, that's the first thing in my outline. And then I begin trying to kind of put it all together and analyze those cases with my actual facts. That's how I always do it. I I have to free write in the beginning because I find for some reason that blank computer screen, that blank piece of paper to be very intimidating. And the only way I get going is to start free writing. How about you, Kevin? Do you have a particular thing that helps you get going with a brief? Well, I think one of the one of the things because you you oftentimes everybody knows when a case is going to be, you know, you're going to need a summary judgment brief or you're going to need some sort of brief. Um, for the facts, I do not like to waste time waiting for a motion to come for me to start drafting facts, especially if I know I'm going to be defending a motion. So I like to get a quick jump on drafting facts because I think, you know, James will tell you, those are the most important parts of the brief, in my opinion. And oftentimes just you're going through deposition after deposition, you're trying to piece it together. But from the legal standpoint, James told me this and I'm surprised he didn't mention this, but I found it really effective. So you're gonna steal it from him. He's I'm not even gonna steal it from him because I modified it. I, mod- I modified it, Missy. I'm it made remind it, you made of it better. 
I like to take the motion okay. and then I'll write from the motion. I, well, I'll break the motion apart. Okay. And from the different paragraphs that I've got in the motion, I'll start expounding upon what I've said and what is in, you know, we'll have cases that are cited in the motion. We'll have okay. different you know, points that we're trying to raise in the motion. And from there, it gives me a nice roadmap on what needs to be in the brief. Um, I and do that's charts. Do I, I think it's just for my science. You know, my first degree is in zoology. I'm a very analytical what? person. I just make charts. Zoology? Yes. My first degree is in zoology. And okay. No, a I, little Liza Thornberry. I, I was not going to be a zookeeper. Thank you. <laughs> Come on, Kevin. I didn't know that. We just learned something new. <laughs> zoology. Fancy that. Yeah. We call it zoology in the zoology. educated world. Zoolo Kevin. Zoology? Zoology. That's, That's just right. I don't even sound right. Zoology, <laughs> but it's Z-O-O. -O. All right. This is a good one. What's the best analogy that you've ever mm. used? Katie. Yeah. Katie, have you, <laughs> did you use any analogies? I, I won't put it like, on the spot. James, you go first. I don't, I really don't think I've ever used an analogy. Oh. I mean, what I did, I had to do, I did mock trial. I don't, I don't think this is an analogy, but we had to come up with kind of like a, like a catchphrase. Which okay. that was really fun to me. I would be sitting in class. I should have probably been paying attention to torts, but I'd be sitting in there. I'm like, all right, like what's going to like, what's going to get them. And so then that one we did, it was a wrongful death, like Slayer type case. And I, we did, um, desperate people make desperate decisions. That's the theme. There you go. Yep. Okay. So not an analogy, theme. but you know, she's theme. No, like gun, a no good deed. Oh my yeah. God. I wish you would leave that alone. <laughs> How about well, you? How about you, James? Um, you got you got one that's memorable. I'm not an analogy guy, really and truly. See, I love them. Oh. Okay, I'll tell you mine. Hold one on, too. Meta I okay, have one. Though. Okay. Metaphors, uh, you know, I probably use more. Uh, kind of, you know, when I'm when I'm talking about things, especially in my arguments, I, I know I'm over the top with a a specific like precedent, like prior case where. Just, just like this case, or you yeah. know, I always, I always do that. But um, there was this one case we had where um, the issue, the standard, was uh, whether the trial judge had, if there was clear error in his decision. Okay. And I found I can't, I can't take credit for this, but it, it was, it was awesome, and I ended up putting it in the brief. Um, the, the position was by a, a this was a another court of appeals when they were talking about clear error and how wrong it had to be <laughs> the court of appeals said that it must strike us as wrong with the force of a five week old unrefrigerated dead fish it must be dead wrong <laughs> so I was able that's to, really you I, you can you can smell it yeah when you I, say that I was able to <laughs> cite that for you know one of our cases dealing with clear air and you know I probably marched around here for a month and a half talking about how, so proud how great yourself. it was yeah it was so, so bizarre <laughs> you know, just dead fish around um I had one okay I was going through uh an appraisal issue and both appraisers, um, you know, when they can't agree, they obviously have the appointment of the umpire. Umpire comes in. Both sides were just not agreeing on who they would point appoint as the umpire. Okay. And I love a good, just a good play on words, period. So as soon as I heard umpire JC, I'm thinking baseball. You know what I'm saying? I'm thinking baseball. So they're the opposing attorney is just nailing 
my guys, I offered three or four guys up as the umpire who all had, I thought, experience with acting as an umpire in these appraisals. None of his did. They were all former judges. None of them had done this insurance appraisal work. And so I get up and I start talking with the judge because this guy had been saying the entire time that this is a really simple thing for any judge to do. I get up, James. I said, judge, the umpire is tasked with calling balls and strikes. Ooh. Right. I said, who would you rather call balls and strikes? Someone who's played baseball or someone who fishes? And the judge loved it. He was like, he was like, he, he loved it, James. And he appointed one of my guys because my guys played baseball, James. Those guys were fishermen. We're talking baseball here. I, I mean, and the judge, she was baseball. smiling. Was going well. I don't say it was front of, but I, I heard. I think I heard about that one for you know, a month and a half, two months. It was epic. Look, we have to pat ourselves on the back. So let's turn to big cases, okay? Mm, yeah. So James, which what do you have on your list of big cases to watch? So. This was one that actually was decided in April of 2023. It was actually Cummings versus uh, Premier Rehab. And in that case, the Supreme Court held that when dealing with various discrimination claims under the Civil Rights Act, emotional distress damages are no longer available. Um, So that has a big impact in what I call the spending clause laws of, you know, our system. And although it's already been decided by the Supreme Court, just how that is functioning in the lower level, the district courts, and ultimately whether or not, you know, that is overturned, because that has a huge impact on the civil rights laws where you're discriminated against. And now the court is saying all of the emotional damages that you suffered as a result of that discrimination are no longer able to be, you know, received by the individual, the claimant. Right. And, and, and so, they, I mean, in those types of cases, there can be a lot of emotional damage that occurs. That's right. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm keeping an eye on in healthcare. The False Claims Act is a, a really important federal law. And it, it, the interesting thing is about the False Claims Act is it was originally enacted to roll back defense contractor um, fraud, but it's now being used in healthcare quite a bit because we have a lot of government payers. We have Medicare, Medicaid, Tricare, and there's a couple more there. So it allows the government or someone acting on their behalf, we know them as the whistleblower, the key TAM, mm-hmm. to bring a case um, where a claim is false, meaning that there's something um, defective about it, um, that it shouldn't either the service shouldn't have been billed, that they didn't meet the requirements of the service, and that the person that presented the claim did so with a certain standard of knowledge called scientor, and that was a material mis- um a false claim, and it caused the government to pay out money. Well, we've had a lot of a, a circuit court split with um, Scientor, and there's several different, when we talk about when somebody does something knowingly, they can do it with, under the False Claim Act with actual knowledge, um, uh, deliberate ignorance, or reckless disregard. So what these two consolidated cases the Supreme Court heard about is whether that it's about the defendant's subjective knowledge or it's an objective 
objectively reasonable standard. And why that's important is, is that then if somebody's, you know, defendant in a False Claims Act case, then they can say, well, a kind of a post hoc analysis where they say, no, but it was objectively reasonable that I believe that law said that and I could submit that claim. And so that would really gut a lot of the False Claims Act whistleblower cases. Sure. So the Supreme Court came down pretty narrowly on the topic, but they said that, no, it was not about it being objectively reasonable, that it was the subjective belief that um, the person submitting the claim held. So it was a pretty big case for False Claims Act. Interesting. How about you, Kevin? Um, following a couple things, you know, obviously um, with Juneteenth recently being identified as a federal holiday, I think in 2021, June 19th, uh, be the day to recognize the emancipation of slaves in America. I really was following the Holmes v. Moore decision coming out of North Carolina uh, on sort of the, I guess, four or five year long battle on what you need to place a vote in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And it was decided years ago in the Superior Courts of Wake County that this bill that was presented, I think it was like SB 824, was in practice, in effect, racially discriminatory because there were some features of the bill that seemed to alienate African-Americans from accessing the ballot box. Right. So it was struck down. Then we had, obviously, uh, a conservative court um, at the Supreme Court voted in, reheard. Now there is a identification requirement. There are some other ways around it, um, but still a bit of a frustrating ruling, especially to communities of color, given access. Uh, so I've been following that. Um, and then, two, uh, we talked about sort of the MDL class action landscape. I know James was discussing last week the Camp Lejeune right. or Lejeune uh, class actions and MDLs. We also have been following the hair relaxer. Yeah. Um, well, hold on, hold on, Kevin. I'm going to mm. make you. What is an MDL? Uh, Multi district litigation. Okay. Um, and so there's been now scientific studies that have uh, alluded to and/or confirmed that there are endocrine disrupting chemicals that have or were in um, hair relaxers, right? And perms um, that were oftentimes used by women of color uh, that have resulted in increased propensity to have uterine right. cancer and ovarian cancer. And they were used mm. from the time mm -mm. people were young, young mm -hmm. girls through, you know, for years and years and years right. and years. And that's important to me because yeah. my, my sister was had gotten relaxed. My sister was not been natural for years now, but when we were right. younger, she was getting relaxed. And so, you know, that's kind of something that kind of hits home with me. So I've been following that and it's working very, with James. And It's very yeah. sad because you've got young women mm -hmm. who, you know, with all these cancers and, and all they were trying to do is make their hair look like what society was demanding right. at right. that point. And that, that just really hits home to me because as women, we are we are constantly being forced to either have curly hair, to not have curly hair, to wear this makeup, to not wear this makeup, to wear nails that are long. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times these things involve lots of different chemicals yeah. that we're 
putting upon our body. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's a very important thing. Well, now it's time to put Katie on the spot. Oh, this is going to be good. I'm ready. I changed the questions. So I hope you know that. I didn't. The ones that you have are no longer the ones that you had. Don't mess this up. Don't mess this up. This is Katie. Okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. This is for the whole firm. Okay. How many questions is it? I know. I know. How many questions is it? How many ever we want. Is but it? let's try okay. not to ask too many. Oh, no. Well, I thought it was only three or four. Yeah, I got three. Yeah. All right. I got I got you three for three. Anybody want? I got you three for three. I put money oh, on this earlier. Kevin's put money on you. Three for three, KJ. Okay. How many interrogatories are allowed under the North Carolina, North Carolina Rules of Civil Procedure? I'm going to go with 50. Mm. Well, that's interesting because you, you're, in, you're in Pennsylvania right now, right? In law school, Penn State. Yeah. So that's... Impressive that you got that one right. Yeah, that's crazy. Impressive that's that you got crazy. that one right. We, Tom, can we get a clap for that one or something yeah. like that? That is there. There we go. There we go. That's way we one for one. We're almost How home. How about a follow up? How many for the federal rules? Oh god, twenty five. Oh, somebody's ready to practice. Katie, Kevin didn't know that. I, hey, it's all go in front of a judge and talk about judge. So look, a little more. Just for our audience, interrogatories are questions we can ask the opposing side, the opposing party um, about the case. And, you know, there's plenty of procedural rules there. But what's important to know is that requirement of how many that you can ask changes according to the court that you're in. So you mm-hmm. have to know. The rules under which you're operating. Right. Um, how many days do you have to respond to discovery requests? Thirty days. Always. Let me see. Pull, pull your always. hands up from under the table. <laughs> I mean, good lord! You about to, you about to get James fired? Did you know he's dead. Katie, Katie, did you did you book Sim Pro? Yeah, did you book? Yeah, you got the book Sim Pro. Good lord! It was a multiple choice. It was a multiple choice exam. You better be quiet for your teacher to watch you. <laughs> All right, last one. You ready? Yep. How many times can you depose a witness? One time. For how many hours? Mm. That's a great question. <laughs> mm. That might be a trick question. <laughs> I think it might. It depends on what you're talking about, where you are, too. Yeah, absolutely. All right. You passed. You know what? We'll, we'll keep you around for Good another job, another week. We'll keep you around for another week. Good job. All right. Now it's time for the Zealous Advocate Law Review. <sighs> So we're trying to show our favorite products because lawyers are very quirky people. And so we're going to give a pitch. We figured the best way to do that is practice our advocacy skills by giving a sales pitch. So we're going to talk about our favorite writing notebook legal pad today. I wish they had that little boom. The champ is here. Because I won last week. You need. Oh, that's what they say. You're the unofficial winner. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So who's going first? You I'm two? going first. No. Okay. Let's hear it. I'm not. I'm not waiting on him again. <laughs> I know. He takes all of your ideas. You put oh, them on paper. Really? Yeah. That's what you did. Just like it. Just. All right. No, it's okay. All right. Okay. So let's let's get into character. All right. Let's get some let's get some uh, some notes up, Kevin. Yeah. Okay. Ahead. All right. I need everyone in here to to pay attention. First of all. <laughs> okay. Because you got me. Because if you're not listening, Kevin. You're going to miss this message. That's, right. that's how deep it is. That's how, that's, how deep, that's how deep this is. All right. Okay. okay. I have before me the Office Depot spiral bound notepad. This notepad right here is the beginning of infinite possibilities. Okay. It is where dreams become reality. 
It's where thoughts and feelings become expressions. It is where experiences become memories. And Kevin, those memories are never lost in this notepad. It is where Mark Twain and Thomas Jefferson were once inspired. It is where George Lucas's words and ideas became stories. It is where Picasso's sketches became masterpieces. It is where Edison's ideas became inventions. Kevin, this notepad right here Mm -hmm. is where a simple dream became a movement by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. (laughs) Okay. It is a sacred place for family recipes. It is where mistakes, excuse me, it is where, yes, mistakes become lessons. It is where the impossible becomes possible. Kevin, this is the Office Depot (laughs) spiral bound notepad. Uh It is where the present becomes history, and it is where all great things begin. Oh. oh, okay. It's a now little that's long, a, but it was now good. that's a good one. That's a good one, Kevin. That's a good one. Okay, you got it, Kevin. I I think that was a very good, <laughs> very very good. I appreciate that tactic. Yeah. Um, I see a bit of myself. I, I'm sure and you what do. you've written and how you presented it. It's because I gave you some ideas, and I'm uh-huh. sure I'm sure what you're about to say has a few of the things I've already uh, incorporated. So, KJ. Yes. The freedom to express yourself comes at a cost. Throughout the ages, the greatest authors, composers, artists, producers, orators have gathered around the four corners of a document to forever change the world. And they knew then exactly what I'm going to represent to you now that there is no greater responsibility than standing in front of an empty canvas for in the right hands, this can be a tool to build Mm. or a weapon to destroy. So as you write in your business source, legal pad six, three, (laughs) zero (laughs) one, please choose wisely. Your business source. Please choose wisely. <laughs> That's like a beer commercial drink wisely. Oh, oh wow. Well, I have a lot to follow there. We have just moved a whole nation with a legal uh, <laughs> All right, KJ. You ready? I'm ready. Let's hear it, Misty. An advocate's job requires focus. One case can involve many meetings, and hundreds of facts. Mm. The advocate must take notes and carefully sift through all of those facts and find just that handful of facts that will win their case. Advocates, turn up your focus, turn down the chaos. Mm. Use focus notes. Okay. Oh, okay. That's a good one. Turn up the focus, turn down the chaos. <laughs> now that is that is a good one. That is good. That is, right. good. That is very good. See, it doesn't have to be five minutes long, James. It was good. <laughs> Next, I, think I, I think I was close to a minute that time. Next time, time we're going to get you. We're going to make Katie, Katie who wins. 
She's not short, short and sweet. You Boom. got it. Boom. You got it. Boom. Man, that's the second time. You're what? over one. I mean, over two that's now. Right. Katie, mm. thank you so much for letting us put you on the spot and ask the intern and, jo and joining us here. We've already enjoyed having you this summer and we look forward to having you longer. Thanks for tuning in to the Zealous Advocate Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to follow us wherever you get your podcasts.